0: a lot can happen in three years like a chat bot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com
1: this podcast contains coarse language adult themes and content of a violent and disturbing nature listener discretion is advised
0: This story takes place in St. John in the province of New Brunswick. Finally, a story from New Brunswick. It's one of Canada's smaller provinces and one of four Atlantic provinces on the east coast of Canada, along with Nova Scotia, Newfoundland and Labrador and Prince Edward Island. New Brunswick shares borders with Quebec and the US state of Maine and is known for being the only official bilingual province 33% of the population speaks French. And if you're wondering what the deal with Quebec is, they declared themselves unilingual, that's French only. But back to New Brunswick. Its port city of St. John has 126,000 residents in its greater area and is the oldest incorporated city in Canada. St. John's Harborside location made it an ideal base for industries like shipping, shipbuilding, and fishing. Since incorporation in 1785, St. John has expanded to become the commercial and manufacturing centre of New Brunswick. Lumber, oil refining, pulp and paper milling, construction and export industries have all thrived and employ many of the province's residents as well as an increasing presence of financial, insurance, and IT sectors. For more than two decades, St. John resident Maureen Adamson had worked as a secretary for a well-known and successful local businessman called Richard Oland. Richard ran the Far End Corporation, an investment firm based in the city. The Oland family were influential in St. John, thanks to the company now known throughout Canada as Moosehead Breweries. But it's actually a six-generation family brewery business founded in 1867 by matriarch entrepreneur Susanna Oland. Richard Oland had previously served as vice president at the company, but for reasons we'll get into later, he now ran his own businesses. It was July of 2011, and the location was Richard's office space in Uptown Historic St. John, in a three-story 19th-century building on Canterbury Street. He often worked late, so his secretary Maureen always arrived first in the mornings to unlock the three different doors needed to access the office. That summer morning, Maureen arrived just before 9 a.m., carrying her customary tray of coffee for her boss. She noted that the exterior front door to the building was closed, but not locked. This wasn't particularly unusual and had happened before. Sometimes she wasn't the first one there. Maureen walked up the stairs to the second floor where the second door was, and she found that that door was not only unlocked, but also ajar. Maureen was annoyed, wondering how her usually fastidious boss could have been so careless about after-hours security. Next, she came across the door to her workplace, the Far End Corporation. It was closed, and she couldn't recall if it was locked because she automatically used her keys out of habit. Maureen noticed the room felt cool and realized the air conditioning was still running. She also noticed the lights were switched on and a foul odour was in the air. Something was not right here. Maureen placed the coffee she'd brought with her on a conference table that was in the middle of the office. As she walked to the side of the table, she saw two legs on the floor sticking out. Panicked, Maureen ran downstairs to the printing business located on the first floor of the building, and asked a person there to accompany her back upstairs to the office. There, they found the body of 69-year-old Richard Oland, lying face down in a pool of blood. He wasn't breathing. What would unfold over the next eight years would shock the province of New Brunswick, and the details of sordid family secrets and strained relationships would ripple across the country Along with allegations of police misconduct and compelling court proceedings that would saturate both local and national media coverage. This is Christy, and you're listening to Canadian True Crime, Episode 60. The Ohlins were one of several wealthy and established families in the greater St. John area who'd called New Brunswick home for generations. Their company, Moosehead Breweries, started out of Nova Scotia, initially trading as Turtle Grove Brewery. The business survived Fires, Prohibition, the Depression, and both world wars, finally being rebranded as Moosehead Breweries in 1947. The company survived the hardships and is proudly the largest and oldest independent brewing company in Canada. In 1941, six years before the rebrand to Moosehead, Richard Henry Oland was born to his parents, Philip Warburton Oland, known as PW, and Mary Howard Oland. Richard arrived two years after the birth of his older brother, Derek, and would be affectionately known by close friends and family as Dick. Derek, Richard and their younger sister Jane grew up in Rossay, an affluent suburb 15 minutes drive east of St. John. Despite the small population of just over 11,000, Rossay residents are known to come from old money and are reported to earn some of the highest per capita incomes in the entire country. In 2014, the average annual household income was over $237,000 a year, while the average household net worth was $2.29 million. After Richard's private high school education, he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from the University of New Brunswick and also obtained a certificate of brewing technology signalling his intention to continue in the family business. When Richard was in his early 20s, he met and began dating 16-year-old Constance Connell, also known as Connie. It didn't take Connie long before she noticed that her new beau's personality was a bit different, a strong theme that would be woven throughout many of his relationships. She may have put this down to his upbringing which she later described as being characterised by yelling and put-downs. The pair married in 1965 and went on to have three children, two girls, Elizabeth, who went by Lisa, and Jacqueline, as well as their son, Dennis. Sailing has long been a passion of the Oland family for generations. Originally, in the early years, it was to facilitate transportation of beer kegs across the harbour. But over time, sailing became one of several traditional family pastimes. Richard Oland loved being out on the water and sailed competitively in international events. In 2010, the year before his body was found, he won both the US IRC National Championship and the Canadian Sailing Association International Sailor Award. He was also the owner of an elite sailboat worth over a quarter of a million dollars. Richard loved horseback riding and angling, but it was sailing and skiing that allowed him to spend quality time with his children, who he didn't get to see very often because of his hectic work schedule. His son, Dennis, later told the local Telegraph Journal newspaper, As a child growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was truly the good old days. The best of times were with that boat. I didn't get to see him a lot, and when we got on the boat, that all changed. By 1980, Richard was a vice president at Moosehead Breweries. At the same time, his older brother Derek was the company's executive vice president. The family hoped the brothers would have a productive working relationship on the senior leadership team, but the reality was that the two men were fiercely competitive, especially Richard. Soon, it disintegrated into an ugly personal battle. Both brothers were vying to be president of the company, The intense sibling rivalry created unwanted conflict and tension at the executive level of the business. Everyone knew that Richard had a relentless desire to be president. At one stage, Derek felt that things had become so unbearable with his younger brother that he temporarily resigned from his role with Moosehead and seriously considered relocating to New Zealand. Derek was later quoted in the book, Last Canadian Beer, The Moosehead Story, by author Harvey Sawler. Dick could argue with anyone. It didn't matter who it was. I couldn't work for Dick because of the nature of the guy. The situation did not sit well with either Derek or the president of the company, their father, P.W. Oland. P.W. was nearing retirement and was concerned about the potential direction of the business. Richard's tenacity was to be admired, but P.W. felt that his youngest son was too inexperienced to take on the role of president. P.W. eventually chose to appoint Derek to the role of executive vice president, with a view to him becoming president. So, in 1981, Richard Oland left Moosehead. His fight to become president had gone nowhere and he'd already established his own trucking business in St. John, named Brookville Transport. Over the years, he worked hard to develop and manage other businesses, including the Far End Corporation, his personal investment holding company, as well as another business that was a woodlock and property rental company called Kingshurst Estates Limited. Despite PW's reservations about his younger son being at the helm of Moosehead, Richard's business savvy saw his own companies thrive. He gained recognition by sitting on various boards in the local business community. He was well known in St. John for serving as president of the board of the Canada Games, when New Brunswick hosted the event in 1985. He also received various awards like Officer of the Order of Canada in 1997. He was awarded an honorary degree from the University of New Brunswick and at one stage also served as a councillor for the town of Rosset and also as president of the New Brunswick Museum. And all this while maintaining an enviable level of financial success. Richard Oland was considered to be an icon in the local business world. He was also known for being community-minded with his efforts in fundraising and donating money to various charitable causes, many of which were churches. But despite Richard's generosity regarding some projects, he was also considered to be miserly when it came to others. An unflattering piece in Maclean's magazine in 2015 reported that Richard cut off funding to the Rosse Pony Club, which his father, P.W., had established as a horseback riding school. And when one of Richard's companies, Brookville Transport, eventually declared bankruptcy, money was still owed to mechanics. The same piece in Maclean's described how, instead of meeting his financial obligations, Richard unethically acquired clients from other, smaller trucking companies. Richard was widely reported as being bright and energetic, but difficult. The mayor of Rosset would describe him as just an ordinary citizen, but he came in about two or three times a year and he made sure I knew how the town should be run. He's one of those people who gets right in your face to make sure you're listening. Another acquaintance later described Richard to McLean's as a very capable guy, but there would be a few people after he got through with them with footmarks on their backs. Another associate told The Fifth Estate that he had a forceful personality, Quote, To know him is to dislike him. His own daughter remarked to the show that her father could make an enemy of anyone. So, Richard was a challenging personality, both professionally and personally. He had a sensible need to stay on top of income and expenditure, but it wasn't exclusive to his businesses. He also monitored his own household expenditure closely. His wife Connie had an allowance of $2,000 a month for household expenses, but she had to present receipts for reimbursement. Richard Oland ran his household like a business. In 1996, the president of the company, P.W. Oland, died. Shares in Moosehead Breweries were split between Derek, Richard, and their sister, Jane. Derek received 53%, Richard took away 33%, and Jane, 14%. This was said to have reflected what their father felt each of his children had contributed to the growth of the company. Two years later, Richard sued both his older brother Derek and Moosehead Breweries on the basis that a downturn in business meant that Richard's dividend payments virtually all stopped. Richard and his sister Jane then went to court in an attempt to wrestle a larger share of Moosehead back from Derek. After a second settlement, Derek eventually bought out Richard's and Jane's shares of the company in 2007. Richard Oland remained a savvy and often ruthless business person who, at his death, was worth an estimated $37 million and was still living in an exclusive part of Rossay. It didn't take the police long to seriously consider financial gain as being the motive for whatever happened to him. Richard's office space at 52 Canterbury Street was rented from a man called John Ainsworth. John also ran the printing business called Printing Plus on the first floor, which was situated directly underneath the offices of Richard's company, the Far End Corporation. Printing Plus was where Richard's secretary, Maureen, had run after discovering her boss's body on the floor. The crime scene that investigators faced was shocking. Richard's blood was left on every wall of the office. Blood spatter covered his desk, chair, computer, a digital camera, paperwork and filing cabinets, even on an empty pizza box in the garbage can. The blood loss was so significant that by the time his body was discovered, it had soaked through several layers of flooring to the ceiling of Printing Plus directly below. Richard was lying face down on the floor. Portions of brain matter were found on his back. His wallet and Rolex watch were found at the crime scene, along with his laptop, keys to his BMW, and an envelope containing cash for his gardener, as well as an iPad. Investigators started processing the crime scene, but it was what they didn't find that provided more questions than answers. Richard's iPhone 4 was missing, and there was no evidence of a clean-up, including in the small bathroom attached to Richard's office. Richard Olin's immediate family was notified that he'd passed away, but the police didn't give any information other than that. Later that day, his wife Connie and their adult children, Lisa, Jacqueline and Dennis, arrived at the police station to give interviews and formal statements. The Telegraph Journal newspaper reported that in the hours between when they were first told about Richard's death, And when their initial police interviews happened, his family had already spoken to each other and speculated about what may have happened to the family patriarch. Richard's wife Connie and their daughter Jacqueline were interviewed together. Connie stated that on the morning of Richard's last day, the couple had been at home together. Richard received a call from his secretary Maureen at 9.50am reminding him of a 10 a.m. appointment that he had. Richard left home and headed to the office, and Connie said she didn't speak with him for the remainder of the day. Obviously, the police were wondering why it was Maureen who found Richard the next morning. Connie said that it wasn't uncommon for her husband not to come home in the evening. When he failed to show up for dinner, she assumed that he may have been attending a meeting in St Stephen, an hour's drive west of St. John. As the night wore on with no sign of Richard, Connie said that she assumed he had decided to spend the night in St. Stephen, rather than drive back late to Rossay. According to Connie, the weeks leading up to Richard's death had been pleasant ones for the family. On June the 25th, less than two weeks before Richard's death, he and Connie's side of the family had attended a 100th birthday celebration for Connie's cousin. Richard had been away participating in a sailing event on Rhode Island, but chartered a plane back especially to attend the party. After the birthday festivities were over, the family adjourned to the Olin's house, where Richard talked about a family history research project that he and his son Dennis had been working on together. Father and son both had a keen interest in genealogy, studying their families, the history, and tracing back their lineages. Through speaking with Richard's closest family members, investigators learned more about his unique personality. Connie described him as verbally and emotionally abusive. She would later say that some years earlier, a family friend who was a clinical psychologist diagnosed Richard as being on the autism spectrum, specifically with Asperger's syndrome, which is on the high-functioning end of the spectrum and is characterized by difficulties in social interaction and communication. Connie would say that these difficulties became more severe when he left his VP position at Moosehead Brewery. Quote, Dick's personality was the norm for our family and we all knew how to work around that norm. He just did not always seem to understand how his words might offend someone. His daughter Jacqueline told police that her father was the type of guy some people got along with and some people did not. He could be very difficult to deal with at times. When police explored the issue of any existing family conflict, Jacqueline offered up that her brother Dennis always tried to gain the respect of his father, but that he'd never been able to live up to his standards. The other daughter, Lisa, was interviewed alone by police. She stated that it was possible for her father to have literally anyone as an enemy. She described him as a hard-nosed businessman, pure business, and if you worked hard, you would get his respect. Their mother, Connie, concurred that her husband, Richard, could be difficult and controlling at times. But she was adamant that their youngest son, Dennis, who she described as gentle and caring, would never hurt his father. She added that he was a good father himself who showed great patience as he taught his kids to ski, sail and canoe. And it was Dennis who Richard turned to for assistance in planning his grandmother's funeral in 1995. As police spoke with Richard's family, they were gaining a picture of a man who had a very formal relationship with his adult children. Those closest to him openly told police that Richard appeared to be a brilliant and successful businessman, but he was also difficult, uncompromising and made enemies easily. And from what Connie and her daughters told police, it seemed that Dennis, the youngest child and only son, had things just a bit tougher than everyone else. Dennis Oland had a similar upbringing to his father, even attending the same private college. When Dennis entered grade 11, he was enrolled in a boarding school in Quebec. But he didn't like being away from home, so he returned to St. John to complete grade 12. Dennis went on to enroll at the Fredericton campus of the University of New Brunswick, the Oland family alma mater, where Richard and Connie had also studied. While he was enrolled there, his parents covered his living expenses. According to the Telegraph Journal, when Dennis's grades started to slip two years into university, Richard promised to buy him a car if he could maintain a B average until graduation. It proved to be a useful motivator. Dennis's grades improved, and Richard bought him a Honda Civic SI, the sports model. The Telegraph Journal reported that when Dennis graduated university with a Bachelor of Arts, there was talk of him attending the London School of Economics. But instead, he expressed an interest in moving to Toronto to find work in the investment sector. So Richard lined up a job for his son through a family friend as well as accommodation. Dennis later said, My father encouraged me to go for it. That was his mindset, go for it. He let me know that he would be my first client. When Richard visited Toronto, he took Dennis out for dinner and he continued to include his son in family vacations, such as skiing trips. Dennis lived in Toronto for a total of four years, returning home to St. John in 1995, where he initially lived with his parents in Rossay. Dennis married and had three children, and like his parents, he lived with his family in a spacious Oland family property, also in affluent Rossay. True to his word, Richard became one of his son's first clients as an investment advisor. But Dennis would later describe how this gradually turned from a professional investment advisor relationship to one of order taker. Richard was demanding as a father and a client. A separate additional phone line was set up in Dennis's office where he worked at CIBC Wood Gundy specifically for Richard's incoming calls. He had lots of opinions and lots of directions for his son to action. The Telegraph Journal reported that when Richard called, he wanted Dennis to pick up the phone quickly and the line was not allowed to ring out. Richard reportedly often called around to his son's house on Sundays too, making unannounced visits. Dennis Oland seemed to have a pretty idyllic life, but things took a sharp downturn when his marriage broke down. He was due to inherit the family property they lived in, but as the couple formally separated, the matter of the division of assets reared its ugly head. The home had been in the Oland family for 70 years, and Dennis didn't want to lose it and he was now paying over $4,000 a month in child support for his three kids. He had a serious money situation on his hands. When Richard heard about it, he proactively stepped in to help. He loaned Dennis over half a million dollars that would allow him to keep the house as part of the divorce settlement and also to cover associated court costs. Dennis agreed to repay his father as well as $85,000 in legal fees that his father also footed the bill for. In the end, the repayment agreement with Richard was that Dennis was to make interest-only payments of around $1,600 per month, and the principal would be taken from his inheritance later on. This repayment was a very manageable amount, much, much less than he would have been paying had it not been for his father's help. In 2009, Dennis remarried. His new wife Lisa had a son from a previous relationship, and they both moved in with Dennis in the family home in Rossay. Police were keen to hear what 44 year old Dennis Oland had to say, especially about his experience and perception of his relationship with his father, in light of what his mother and sisters had already explained. Dennis had provided a handwritten statement to police that gave an outline of his whereabouts in the 24 hours leading up to his father's body being discovered. But they wanted to go through it in more detail in person. Constable Stephen Davidson interviewed Dennis, who said on the night before his father's body was discovered, he arrived at Richard's office at around 5.15 p.m., and parked in the car park on the corner down the street. Dennis told police the visit was related to their genealogy project. He wanted to show his father a family will from 1825. And while he was there, he also wanted to retrieve a family logbook that belonged to his uncle on his mother's side. Richard had borrowed the book to photocopy some pages, and Dennis wanted to return it but he said that as he was climbing the stairs to his father's second floor office, he realized he'd left some things back at work that he needed. But it was okay, his office was just a few blocks away. Dennis said that he used the bathroom in the foyer of the building and then returned to his car. He said that he was second guessing what to do next, whether to return to his office to collect the documents he'd left behind just go back to Richard's office with the documents he already had, or just give up, go home and try another time. He told police that he realised he didn't have an after-hours access pass for his own office, so going back there to get the documents he'd forgotten was no longer an option. But as he drove, he said he was so preoccupied with what to do that he drove the wrong way onto a one-way street. In the end, Dennis said he returned to his father's office for a second time at around 5.30 p.m., 15 minutes later. He went into the office and exchanged pleasantries with his father's secretary, Maureen, before she left for the day. He told police that he met with Richard in the office. They discussed the genealogy material he'd bought, describing the meeting as a great time. He said he left around 6.30pm. As he left, he took a call from his wife Lisa, who wanted to know where he was. She said she wasn't feeling well and just wanted him to come home. But he didn't.
2: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside.
1: He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated.
3: Danger is everywhere
0: Dennis shared custody of his three children with his ex-wife and they were staying with their mother for the week but he knew that they often went down to a place called Renforth Wharf later in the day to swim. On the way home, Dennis said he drove to the wharf hoping to say a quick hi to his kids but they weren't there that day so he continued home. He told police that he arrived home at 7 and thought that Lisa might be upstairs, so he went straight up. She wasn't, so he got changed and then went back downstairs to find her. She was irritated with him for not coming home straight away when she was sick. Dennis told police that he didn't tell his wife he'd stopped at the wharf on the way home to see his kids, only that he'd stopped off at his father's office. The couple then headed out to the drugstore and to the market to get some food. Dennis said that after dinner at home, they watched part of a movie before they discovered they'd run out of milk. Dennis made a trip to get some more. When he arrived home at about 9pm, he put his hens away and did some gardening. He said that he and Lisa both went to bed at 11.30pm and read a while before falling asleep. Constable Davidson wanted to get into the nature of Dennis's relationship with his father, Richard, even further. Please note, all clips have been edited slightly for time and clarity.
4: Was he the easiest guy in the world to get along with? No. Mm-hmm. But not to the point where, you know, someone would you know who knew him would want to do something to him. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. I mean, I think most people would say, OK, yeah, he's hard to get along with, but he was never... You know, he was never violent. He was never uh, totally, completely unreasonable that you couldn't sort of go, okay, well, you know, that didn't entirely make sense. But I mean, right. you know, you well, knowing as long as we all have, you know, you know a person's character, and sure. you know, you want know, to keep your distance, yes. and, you know, that kind of thing, and, yeah. and look, with him, it was a lot easier to keep your distance mm-hmm. because uh, it just kept the peace. Right, and uh, and uh, so.
5: How was how your how was your relationship with him, uh, you know, um, from I guess uh, when you were younger to now, and and
4: uh. yeah, I would say that my relationship with my dad was probably perfect until you know I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and then you know my teenage years with him were very difficult. Right, um, I was the only son, so I think mm-hmm. I took most of the pressure. Yeah, uh, he, I think yeah. his upbringing was you know, tougher than mine, mm-hmm. you know, his father was a, a military guy and, you know, grew up with that generation and mm-hmm. uh, living through the depression and everything. His father wasn't easy on him and my father suffered, you know, from, when he was younger from dyslexia and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we could certainly as a family, you could tell he had some sort of spectrum thing, you know, going on as he was older and yes. that would rear its ugly head at times mm-hmm. where you would see somebody who, uh, you know, was impatient and, and did have some you know, uh, sort of family social issues. I mean, my, my father and I weren't, weren't close son, father and son. Mm-hmm. I mean, we... Uh...
0: He went on to say that his family had high expectations and likely for that reason he enjoyed going away to camp all summer as a teenager. He said they would still get together for family dinners and formal occasions, describing them as not always pleasant. Things were regimented, he said, and everyone had to be on their toes around Richard. Otherwise, it wouldn't go over well. But then Dennis talked about his father's other quirks with some affectionate nostalgia.
4: You know, we, this guy was somebody who uh, he was a bit of a nut in a good way, mm-hmm. meaning like he, if he was ever in a car, he could tell you how fast it would go top right. speed and you know if he went skiing somewhere he would ski and take us all down the steepest hills (laughs) you know we had an old (laughs) 1970s four-wheel drive truck and that was everywhere we had horses in the family and we rode and galloped across the river in the winter yeah exactly you know so you can imagine how exciting that was at the same time for sure and uh and you know this is a guy who was recently living his dream i mean this one his one item on his bucket list and that's to to Mm sail and god the guy was winning races Mm -hmm. um you know and that was good but you know he yeah he and I didn't have that close father-son relationship I think we would do well just by he had this thing that you can't be friends with your son right you know and I get that he Mm -hmm. wasn't friends with his father I don't think I wanted to be friends with him Mm -hmm. but uh and you know he would say and do things that you know, could be hurtful. But, you know, if you didn't see a lot of each other, particularly in the last few years because he been racing, I hardly see him at all. Right. So uh, none of us did.
0: Dennis good-naturedly recounted how he and his father stopped sailing together because Richard just barks and barks and barks. <laughs>
5: yeah. So how, how have the last few years been? I know you said, you know, growing up in the teenage years and that sort of thing have been more... Have they gotten better with with you guys? uh... Um,
4: well I think it's when you're an adult and you have your own kids and you have your own life and you don't really see your father that much it automatically gets better. Yes. Um, You know there's there's been occasion where we've had you know some phone sort of arguments but there's been nothing there's that overall blanket that this guy is a really difficult person to get along with Mm -hmm. and I think when you're a teenager, you wear it differently, like, this guy's coming down on me, he's yes. a jerk all the time, he's so hard on me. Mm-hmm. When you're my age, you actually I can actually look at him and say, you know, it's not all his fault, mm-hmm. because he had such a hard upbringing, he had, you know, his dyslexia, and, you know, mom thinks he had this thing, Asperger's, which is sort of like... Uh, It's almost like autism. Mm -hmm. You know, this intensely, intensely, intensely intelligent person, Mm -hmm. but lacks certain social skills. You know, and that was his thing where he could throw a lot of people off, Mm -hmm. including me and everybody else in the family. But, you know, that worked to his advantage as well because he had no fear. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Dennis went on to explain that his father's shared interest in genealogy was the one thing they could have a conversation about without arguing. He then spoke about how his father helped him to keep his house during his very contentious divorce, describing the money that Richard loaned and how it effectively helped Dennis to get out of a hole.
4: You can imagine, you know, when you have this somewhat difficult relationship with your father, when the going gets tough, Mm -hmm. he stepped up. Right. You know, and I mean, that's... You, that's very powerful
5: stuff. It showed you that even though your relationship may have been strained on the outside, you're still a father deep down. Exactly. Sure.
4: You know, and that was was fantastic. You know, and to his credit, he never threw it in my face. Yes. Like he never said, he never let that hang over me. Right. And in our family, you know, you don't get given stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we've had a very fortunate upbringing. Okay? Yes. But there's there's been nothing you know they don't he doesn't go buy you things he doesn't take you right. on trips and spend the money if you want to go on a trip you know you pay your own way and we'll all have a good time yes you know he was one of those guys that always said like you know if you ever get sick or one of your kids get sick we'll send them off somewhere and get the best care and mm-hmm. and we'll make sure that that uh, everything's Good as good as we can do right so I mean you will talk to some people and say he was a ruthless bastard and you talk to other people and say yeah but you
5: know he had that shining light there well that, yeah that I mean and, and,
4: so, and sometimes it was just quiet you know mm-hmm. and, and maybe you know at the end of the day we were talking about you know a loan of five or six hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. it was a lot of money mm-hmm. and uh I was grateful for it
5: right of course yeah <laughs> as anybody would be as anybody
4: would be. it's a lot of money yeah
0: Dennis confirmed to police that he believed his father had high expectations of him that he couldn't meet, explaining, My father was of the belief that you couldn't be friends with your son. Dennis spoke about how his father interacted with his own social circle, including other wealthy families in the St. John area.
4: I mean, he, he seemed to go through friends. Yes. Like... We were growing up. I mean, he, he'd have all these friends, and he just seemed to exhaust them. I think, you know, his intensity would just just exhaust them, and they just throw mm-hmm. their hands up. And you know, I mean, he one, made one couldn't mistake. Couldn't keep up with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one thing, yeah, they couldn't keep up with him. But I met me you know, He made one mistake. This is a number of years ago. With his best friend, mm-hmm. basically, uh, you know, his, this guy's son was marrying this this woman this mccain somebody from the mccain family Mm -hmm. and dad was friends with the mccains and had a mutual lawyer and told the lawyer that this mccain girl was making a big mistake Mm -hmm. marrying this guy his best friend's son right and well that got backed and it just you know things weren't the same i mean people like that tend to say inappropriate things they don't realize that you have to filter right information (laughs) so uh
0: Dennis also spoke about an issue that was a bit of an elephant in the room for the Oland family. For eight years, Richard had been having an affair with a St. John real estate agent named Diana. Coincidentally, Diana worked at the same real estate agency as Dennis's ex-wife. Dennis and his sisters were aware of the affair their father was having, and were extremely unhappy about it. They wanted to protect their mother, Connie, as much as possible, and now family friends had begun to find out about the relationship. Dennis told police that about 12 months before his father's murder, he became so concerned about the intensity of Richard and Diana's affair that he confidentially discussed it with one of Richard's business associates, a man called Robert McFadden. Dennis asked Robert to speak with his father and urge him to stop the affair because news was traveling around and it was becoming more public. In his interview with police, Dennis didn't speak positively about Diana, claiming that she was hot-headed and a fatal attraction type of person. After this background discussion, Constable Davidson got back to the tough questions. Remember, Dennis hasn't been told what has happened to his father, only that he's passed away.
5: Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, I have to ask you, ask you this. Did you have any involvement in your in your father's death? No. Uh, I ask you that because you were the last person there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's something that I have to cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have
4: no reason to want my father dead, to kill him, to... I mean no i mean we've had our things but no i wouldn't rob someone of the fun that
5: they're having and you know he's just no do you can you think of who would have an interest in that who would benefit from that the most because of a grudge or revenge for any of- reason do you see uh, who would benefit the most of your from your father's death
4: Someone who wanted twenty dollars out of a wall to buy drugs. Um, this is reaching a vindictive ex-girlfriend, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I don't know that woman, so I don't don't know. But no, I, I think he's pissed a lot of people off, but not to that point where someone would, you know, would want to want to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I. N- no one i know and no one i can think of i mean those of us who are closest to him are probably the most annoyed by him mm-hmm. but you know we we have enough distance from him that he doesn't bother us in that kind
5: of way mm-hmm.
4: you know
5: no do you see do you see uh, any any other reason why uh, someone would do this any other reason why the type of person that would do it.
4: Someone who's pretty sick, I guess. Someone who, I mean, if someone has killed him, which you're implying that that's the case, um, I mean, I can't, there's no one who has has lost money by him. There's no one who he has, uh, as far as I know, insulted in in any way. I mean, there's, there's no one that he... Has left out. I mean, I'm sure there were some of his, his old sailor buddies that were upset that they weren't included in the in the new sort of boat and what was going on there. But I mean, that's stuff that everybody in life has to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not not to the point to to want to harm it.
0: Dennis went on to speculate that the person who killed his father could have been someone that Richard Oland said something negatively to and they'd had enough. Constable Davidson told Dennis that there were some inconsistencies in his story. For one, his movements were strange. The two visits, the driving the wrong way up the street. He explained that CCTV cameras could verify whether Dennis was telling the truth about his movements that day and his presence at his father's office. Additionally, the constable pointed out that it was odd that Dennis had apparently stopped at the wharf to see his kids, despite already running late to get home, knowing his wife was sick and just wanted him home. Dennis's account of his movements the day he visited Richard were confusing to police. And his suggestion that what happened to his father could be as simple as someone wanting to steal money from his office to buy drugs wasn't supported by the evidence found at the crime scene. Richard's iPhone was missing, but other, more valuable items had been left untouched, including his wallet and his expensive Rolex watch. And of course, his BMW keys were there and his car was still in the parking lot. Constable Davidson left the room for a while and then took Dennis through his account of the day again.
5: I just want to go back uh, because uh, some some new information is coming in and I just want to go back and clarify a few things with you. Um, just the times because of course the times are very important to us and, and uh, with surveillance cameras in that area there's you know they're all over the place there and uh, I want to make sure you know the times line up so, so nothing is off so uh, I'll just get you to go back. Um, you said that you left work the first time uh, and what time was that?
4: Quarter after
5: five. That was the first time you, you went down to the office quarter after five.
4: Yeah.
5: Because you you mentioned you went down twice. Yeah. So the first time was quarter after five.
4: Yes. Yeah.
5: And you where did you park? The first time.
4: In right in the parking lot, right where my dad parks his car. Just so on that the street a bit on the right. Yeah. yeah.
5: Yeah. Okay. And then so quarter after five. About yeah. Okay. So you go to the door. Yeah. And and. Uh, went up the stairs and
4: had my bag of stuff, and I forgot my stuff, Mm -hmm. well, some of my stuff, so I left and drove, went to go back to the office, and then, like, well, you know, don't need that stuff, so I went back. You went back to the office? Not my, I went to go back to my office, and and then gave up. I might have gone, likely would have gone down Princess Street, and up King and back in Canterbury. You drove? Yeah.
0: The constable was surprised because Dennis's office was literally just down the street in Brunswick Square Shopping Centre within walking distance.
5: Okay, Yeah, you drove back to your yeah. office. Yeah.
4: yeah, I think uh, I might have been just thinking, well, I'm not going to go, mm-hmm. you know, okay. and then just, no, no, I'll go, I've got enough here, because what he wanted was the wheel.
5: So you went up the first time and spoke to your dad? Nope. Oh, you did
4: no. Got to the top of the stairs, didn't have my stop, Mm-hmm. so I left. Okay, yeah.
5: Drove back to Brunswick Square.
4: Mm, I don't think I got all the way there. I think I just went to. You know the bottom of. Prince, you know uh, Prince William and King, mm-hmm. and then went up King, and back in
5: Canterbury. So you didn't even go back to work. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, Okay, so then when you came back the second time, what time was that? Well, I don't know
4: exactly, but I know that Maureen was there for about ten minutes, so I'm guessing. Well, I think it was around five thirty.
5: Then you get there the second time. Um, why did Why did you take your car back around instead of? Walking? Because I wasn't sure
4: back. I was going to be going back. Okay, I was just probably going to leave. Okay, and uh, and then she said no, no, I got what I. Wanted here, because I had a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. but
5: what what else did you have?
4: Oh, I have a Like a stacks stacks of stuff. Um, I had the stuff from Devin that he wanted and I have this uh, Green book that somebody wrote back in the early 70s that you know, I was going to give him and that you know I left that in my office mm-hmm. and uh, that was the thing that I wanted the most and uh and I wanted to get some pictures from that I had given him or Maureen three months ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just, there's a lot of times I'll go there and if it's, you know, if Lisa calls me or something, I might just keep going home. So, okay. So I went back and uh, I went in and Maureen was there five or ten minutes.
5: Uh, just gonna kind of go back, because the first time when we were when we were speaking you, you, I thought you'd mentioned that you went back to the office, but it was locked.
4: no
0: he means dennis's office
5: i
4: didn't go back to the office I was going back to the office I realized it didn't have the past okay, so I was like i'm I'm not bothering with this
5: okay and then uh the stuff you brought up what just i guess we didn't cover that, but did you bring a bag or- a bag yeah a bag yeah. okay
4: yeah.
5: and so Bear with me. We're, I'm just covering it again. I just want to be sure with it. And uh, so the second time is 5.30? Yeah, around that time. Okay.
4: I mean, it would more... Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what time, but, but I would say 5.30, that seems about right.
5: And and again, did you did you take the bag up with yep. the second time? Yep. Okay. And uh, what were you wearing? Because we, I just want to make sure who's coming in, who's going out when we look at the surveillance, I can mm-hmm. say, that's yeah. Dennis. And that's um, this guy.
4: These pants. The shoes, a dress shirt, and a navy blazer.
5: You were wearing those those pants, those shoes? Those
4: shoes, a dress shirt, not this, you know,
5: a collar dress shirt. Yeah. And a navy blazer. And a navy blazer. Yeah. Okay.
0: Dennis went on to say that after his father's visit, he left at about 6.30, because that's when his wife Lisa called. He said when he exited the building, he walked the wrong way at first before realising that he'd parked in a different spot to where he'd parked the first time. Throughout this questioning, Dennis appeared relaxed. He sat with his legs crossed, his elbow on the table, leaning his head against his hand. The conversation was then turned to the strange wharf stop-off to see his kids.
5: Did you know they were at their mum's? Did I know my
4: kids were at their mum's?
5: Yeah, oh yeah. But you went to the wharf to see if they were there? Yes. Okay.
4: I knew that they're week with their mom okay yeah. so but they do these activities during the day mm-hmm. so i didn't know where they were right. i just knew they were either at their mom's house or at oh, the I wharf see. or somewhere in the oh, middle I see. I yeah gotcha. yeah
5: okay and when you when you first came home uh was lisa there waiting for you
4: she was in the sunroom. okay but i mean i went upstairs and got changed and uh then I think I went outside looking for her in the garden and she called me like where the hell are you I've been waiting for you yeah (laughs) and uh then she was in the sunroom all wrapped up
5: cold and Mm -hmm. um just kind of things are curious to me but you know I know if it's me I'm coming home my wife's mad I'm gonna go right to her and say hey I'm home just going upstairs is there any reason why you switched the the sequence of that and didn't say hey I'm home to her first and then went up and
4: well, I did. I went around the house and I walked in through the living room mm-hmm. and our house is quite an open concept. So when you walk in, you can actually see every single room. Mm-hmm. And so I looked around, saw every room and went upstairs, assuming she was upstairs oh, okay. and she wasn't. And so I got changed and then, okay, the, okay well, assuming she's not in the house, I went out to the vegetable garden uh, and she wasn't there. Yeah. So then I go, I'm coming back in the house and she's like, the hell are you? Mm-hmm.
5: Okay, and that's why I have to clarify because in my mind I have to get everything straight. And sometimes I go, okay, well... I, yeah, you know. Yeah. So. Oh, and she was she was quite angry. Yeah. yeah.
0: After a bit more conversation, the constable left the room and came back in with a renewed focus. He asked Dennis to go through his movements again, starting off with his first visit to his father's office. As he described it again. He started sounding a little confused and unsure of himself. Constable Davidson asked him to continue explaining things that he seemed confused about and corrected himself several times. He asked Dennis if there was anything else that happened that he didn't tell him about. Dennis said no, followed by, I'm good. Finally, they went over it yet another time. Dennis again tried to trace back and explain his various movements thinking about where he parked each time and what streets he took to get there. He continued to be confused as he tried hard to remember.
1: Tell me what happened.
5: You've got me all confused
4: now. No, it's not your fault. No, it's not your fault. Um, yeah, and I, I don't remember. Because I... I know it was parked on Canterbury Street. I know it was the parking lot there. And I know it was parked beside my father. And I can't remember if it was, Well, I know that the first time I went in where I was parked. And after that, I'm having difficulty getting it straight.
5: Okay. I want you to think hard though. I want you, it's really important like I said. I want you to think, take your time thinking and just play it through and let me know what took place.
4: You have me intimidated now, so now I'm getting a mental block.
5: Okay. Uh,
4: like you're-, you're No, I'm just- to me. I'm trying to- it. It. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Because I'm just, I get yeah. focused and I get- yeah, tr- I know. Trying to pay and attention. And, to. and I'm trying to focus and I'm trying so hard to.
5: Just give me one second.
0: Constable Davidson then left the interview room Dennis spent a few minutes thinking out loud muttering to himself clearly trying to jog his memory by retracing his movements on the desk in front of him with his finger
4: and then I went in so I I came in and I parked there then I left there and, and I stopped
1: there. Then what I went that.
0: When Constable Davidson returned to the room, the tone of the interview shifted. He informed Dennis for the first time that he had now become the primary suspect in his father's murder but as yet, no charges were laid. Dennis, shocked, was read his rights and chose to contact his lawyer, who immediately instructed him to stop talking to the police. When the interview resumed, this time as an interrogation, Constable Davidson told Dennis, There is absolutely no question in my mind that you did this, and I want to know why. Dennis stated that he would not be answering any further questions, and repeated that he did not murder his father. For the next 15 minutes, Constable Davidson continued to ask Dennis questions, but Dennis remained silent. It was clear that he wasn't budging and the constable left the room. Dennis's interrogation was heading into its fourth hour. When the door opened again, it was a different police officer. Constable Keith Copeland introduced himself, and it was clear from his manner and line of questioning that he was pulling no punches. Bad cop, good cop. Constable Copeland challenged Dennis on his version of events. Dennis responded he might have gotten confused about his movements. Dennis was told that everything he said would be able to be verified from CCTV footage, And reminded him that they have cameras everywhere. From that point on, Constable Copeland used the tactic of assuming that Dennis had most definitely been lying, although he didn't mention whether or not they actually had reviewed any of the footage yet. As the interview progressed, Dennis remained silent, but he was clearly uncomfortable. He was no longer relaxed and facing the officer speaking with him, instead he appeared to be hunching his shoulders as he sat turned away from constable copeland who had pulled his chair close to dennis and was leaning forward aggressively dennis kept his head down arms folded protectively across his chest his head at times in his hands
1: so the question is why did this happen not did it happen we know that the question is why and Dennis, we can disprove what you've already told us. And where does that leave you once you don't have that? Once you have the lie that you've told us. The only thing left after the lie, Dennis, for an honest person who made an honest mistake, is the truth. And the truth is, your father was a mean son of a bitch. He controlled every penny that walked through that house. He disrespected your mother, didn't give her money, argued with her about where, how much she spent on groceries. Made you pay your own way to go away with him. Oh, that's business, son. That's the way business people do it. You in your own way or you don't go. Isn't that right? But yet he went wherever the hell he wanted. Yeah, I'll be gone. I'll be back, maybe, sometime, whatever.
0: Dennis remained silent.
1: It's hard, Dennis. It is hard and it's brutal. We need to decide, is this a plan thing? No, you didn't plan this, Dennis. Because if you'd have planned this, you'd have planned this a much better way than you did. You would have had a better plan than this. Because the truth is, Dennis, you didn't have a plan. Did you just go there and get into an argument with him about money? Because you know what? Everything you've told me, Dennis, is about money. And if I grew up in your circumstances, with money all around you, at this stage of my life, I would expect to be sharing in some of that, not battling with that son of a bitch every single day and having him control every aspect of my life because he wouldn't give up any of his goddamn money. You didn't plan this, Dennis. He brought this on. Pushed you, pushed you, pushed you, squeezed you, rubbed your face in the fact that he controls it all disrespected you, disrespected your mother. Yeah, I've got this one, this little sweetie. And I'm taking her away. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Where's my 1600 bucks, Dennis? You owe me 1600 bucks because I bailed you out.
0: Still, Dennis said nothing. Constable Copeland tried for another two hours to get him to talk, trying various tactics and stopping to get him water several times. After a while, he realized the attempts were futile and put an end to the interview. Dennis was not under arrest, so he was free to go. He left the police station just after 11 p.m. Despite the seriousness of the accusation, police let him go wearing the pants and shoes he was wearing, the items he said he'd also worn to his father's office the day before. He was, however, placed under surveillance For the next week from the moment that he left the station he was not observed to have done anything concerning during that time police also interviewed dennis's wife lisa to get her perspective she corroborated her husband's story that when he arrived home on the night of july the 6th he went straight upstairs and got changed lisa also told police the same night She and Dennis talked about the meeting that he'd had with his father about the genealogy. Lisa added, They talked about the family history and he said the meeting was really nice. In the meantime, St John Police had been working to obtain CCTV footage from the street that Richard's office was on and other areas. Once they had it, it revealed a few inconsistencies with Dennis's story. Footage of Dennis leaving his office at CIBC Wood Gundy revealed that he was wearing a brown jacket and beige pants, not the navy blazer he said he'd been wearing. And Dennis said that he visited his father's office twice. The first time, he said he turned back when he realised he'd forgotten something at his office. And then when he realised he didn't have his pass to get back in, he drove back to his father's office. He said that he left at 6.30pm. But the footage showed something different. It showed Dennis with a reusable grocery bag leaving his father's office at 6.12pm. That's almost 20 minutes earlier than he said he left. And footage from a nearby restaurant showed that his car came back past his father's office at 6.21pm, nine minutes before he said that he left his father's office. What was going on here? The autopsy results of Richard Olin's body were in. The forensic pathologist counted 45 wounds to Richard's hands, neck and head. The attack continued after he fell to the floor, defenseless. Several of the wounds were caused by blunt force trauma, resulting in 14 skull fractures. Five of the head wounds were round and measured three centimeters in diameter, and these wounds had a distinct cross-hatching pattern. The other head and neck wounds, each six or seven centimeters long, were inflicted by a sharp instrument. The force of the blows was so strong and sharp that the instrument used to inflict them cut through the bone without the instrument breaking apart. The 69-year-old skull had been caved in to such an extent that a distinct concave area spanned about the size of a lemon. Six of the total 45 wounds were found on Richard's hands which had some broken bones. It was thought that these were likely defensive wounds sustained by Richard as he tried to protect himself from the frenzied blows inflicted by his attacker. Richard's orbital plates, which are the bones of the eye sockets, were described as being like a cracked eggshell. This injury may have been sustained by Richard falling face first onto the floor, causing some degree of frontal impact. Further examination of the wounds to Richard's hands yielded over 30 hair and fiber samples. This included three hairs found inside Richard's hands, as well as tissue samples from underneath his fingernails. However, the hairs found in Richard's hands were lacking a root, which meant they couldn't be tested for DNA. There was DNA material found under his fingernails, but they were later found to be his own. The toxicology report noted no evidence of prescription drugs or drugs of abuse in Richard's system. The forensic pathologist stated that no alcohol was found in Richard's blood. However, a low amount of 2.3 milligrams of alcohol was found in his urine, indicating that Richard had consumed alcohol in the hours before his death. As is often the case, the police would keep this information private until the trial. That same day, as news of Richard's death was breaking to the public, media outlets were gathering statements from those who knew the man the best. The CEO of Enterprise St John spoke to CBC News about his memories of his late friend, saying, he was very passionate and very intense and he had a really phenomenal way of connecting with people. So that combination of knowledge of the community and his passion for business was something that was very genuine and he was a great salesperson for the community. Richard's siblings, Derek and Jane, released a statement saying, in part, We are saddened by the sudden loss of our brother Richard and on behalf of our families. Richard is being remembered kindly by many in the community. Like our father and mother, Richard gave a great deal of himself and his resources for the betterment of St. John and the larger New Brunswick community. We are grateful for these and his many other contributions. As yet, no one knew exactly what had happened to Richard. As news reports started to come out, all the public were told was that Richard Oland's body had been discovered at his office. The police continued to interview the circles of people around Richard Oland. They questioned Diana, the woman that he'd been having an affair with, She told them that she and Richard met several times a week, sometimes at his office. They even travelled together, and at the time of Richard's murder, they'd been in the process of planning a trip to Maine. She stated that they'd even discussed marriage, and that it was her understanding that Richard had arranged to seek legal advice to pursue it further. Diana told police that she and Richard had an ongoing arrangement, to speak on the phone every night at 6.30pm. When Diana's calls to Richard on the evening of July 6th repeatedly went through to voicemail, she sent him text messages. One message said, You've turned your phone off, why? You're not at the office and don't tell me you have a business meeting because you don't. So tell the fucking truth because I'm sitting here not doing suspicious things and I have a lot of men who would love to be with me. Do stop this fucking around and answer the damn phone. I will call at your house. The next morning, Diana said that she had a hair appointment in uptown St. John, and she decided to stop by Richard's office. She saw uniformed police officers outside. She texted him again, asking why police were there. And then, true to her word, she called Richard's house and confronted his wife Connie, demanding to know where he was and advising that there were police cars outside his office. Connie only knew of Diana as a friend of Richard's, so this would have been a distressing interaction on several levels and would turn out to be the first of several unexpected and devastating blows to Connie. Diana had an alibi for the night of the murder, telling police that she was at home with her then-husband on Darling's Island, around 30 minutes away from Richard's office. But she told police that Richard had often complained to her about his lack of respect for Dennis and his perception that his son had a poor work ethic. Police interviewed Richard's secretary, Maureen. She stated that she last saw her boss the night before, when she left the office shortly after Dennis arrived to discuss their genealogy project. She said Dennis was greeted by his father with a very friendly reception. It came up in conversation that Richard was adamant about alcohol not being kept or consumed on the premises. As you'll recall, Printing Plus was the business situated directly under Richard's office. On the evening of July the 6th, the business owner and owner of the building, John Ainsworth, was there with a friend called Anthony Shaw. Anthony told police that around 7.30 or 7.45, he heard six or seven exceptionally loud, quick, pounding thumps from above. He said it sounded as if someone were banging on a wall, followed by noises that sounded like shuffling. John estimated the noises to be around the same time as Anthony and told police that the sounds seemed to be coming from one particular area of Richard's office. As you'll recall, Dennis Oland said he left his father's office at 6.30 and these noises weren't heard until an hour later. Both men left the premises of Printing Plus at around 9pm. One of the meetings Richard Oland had on July 6th, his last day, was with his business associate Robert McFadden and his son Galen. The two older men had known each other for almost 30 years. He was also the man mentioned earlier that Dennis had asked to have a word with his father about the affair with Diana. As it turns out, Robert couldn't ever find an appropriate opportunity to bring up the subject. In his interview with police, Robert stated that he and his son met with Richard late in the afternoon and they both left the office at around 5.30pm, which was just before Dennis arrived. Robert was assisting Richard to manage his finances and had been tasked with establishing a trust fund that Richard wanted set up for his family. According to CBC News, Robert said later that for the previous five years, Richard had, quote, for all intents and purposes, consumed all of my available time. After Richard's death, Robert took over running two of his three companies. Richard Olin's funeral was held at Our Lady of Perpetual Help in Rossay, a church that he had helped pay to build. Over 450 people filled the church, including New Brunswick dignitaries like Premier David Elwood. Richard's son Dennis read a scripture passage during the service, and at the conclusion of the proceedings, mourners filed out of the church to Frank Sinatra singing My Way. Rosse Mayor William Bishop later spoke to McLean's magazine about Richard's funeral, saying, I don't know how to put this. The church was packed, but there wasn't a tear shed. People weren't disturbed emotionally. In the days after the funeral, The St. John Chief of Police issued a statement to the media. It said, Preliminary results of the autopsy, coupled with the evidence at the scene, clearly indicate that Richard Oland was a victim of foul play. He went on to add that there was no evidence to suggest that it was a robbery or a random act. No further details were given, including about the state of Richard's body or the injuries he'd sustained. Police received an interesting phone call. It was from a woman who saw a TV news story of the funeral and recognised Dennis Oland as one of the pallbearers. And she had some information. She told police that on the evening of July the 6th, soon after Dennis said he was visiting with his father, she and her husband were parked in her van at the Rossay Riverside Country Club, She saw a well-dressed man she later identified as Dennis, wearing a sports jacket and pants. The man walked quickly toward Renforth Wharf, carrying a reusable grocery bag. She said he walked past her van toward the wharf, stopped to pick something up off the ground, and looked over toward the lighthouse and playground. He continued to walk to the end of the wharf where he sat down and placed the object he picked up and put it in the reusable grocery bag. Then he walked briskly back down the wharf to the parking lot. The woman said something seemed off, quote, there was a purpose to what he was doing, a real purpose. When questioned, the woman said neither she nor her husband saw the man discard any items or leave anything behind at the wharf. They reported that he drove off in a silver Volkswagen Golf. This was confirmed as being the make and model of the car that Dennis Oland drove. Unbeknownst to the public, a team of police divers conducted a scuba diving search around the wharf for any sign of a murder weapon or Richard's missing iPhone. Nothing was found. The police obtained a search warrant to search Dennis Olin's house. After an eight-hour search, more than 50 items were seized to keep his evidence, including lint from a clothes dryer, legal documents, bank statements, a purple purse with a note inside, bedding and clothing. Also seized in the search was a brown Hugo Boss jacket with a dry cleaning tag attached, which was found hanging in a bedroom closet. On a chest of drawers in the master bedroom, police found a dry-cleaning receipt in Dennis's wife Lisa's name, dated July the 8th, the day after Richard's body had been found. Nineteen items had been dry-cleaned, including two sports jackets, a pair of pants and 16 shirts. The timestamp on the receipt was 9.08 a.m., the morning after Dennis's interview with police had ended. Other dry cleaning tags were also seized during the search, which were found in the garbage can in the ensuite bathroom of the master bedroom. The Hugo Boss jacket was identified as looking the same as the one Dennis was wearing as he left his office that evening, as captured on CCTV footage. The neighbours had noticed the concentrated police presence at Dennis Olin's house, and before long, news was starting to travel around. No one from law enforcement gave any information on what was happening. Behind the scenes, though, search warrants were also obtained for Dennis's car, cell phone, home and work computers, a logbook, Richard's cell phone records, and a 25-foot sailboat owned by Dennis's wife Lisa and a friend that was docked at a local yacht club. Months went by. Dennis Oland continued about his business. His family's public and unwavering support of him was clear. He was named co-executor of Richard's will and also co-director of all three of his companies. His debt to his father was erased, with the principal repayment to be reflected in his eventual inheritance. For now, he was given $150,000. $100,000 of this was payment for serving as co-executor of his father's will, and $50,000 was payment for him to be a trustee for a fund set up for his mother, Connie. Despite the spectacle of the police search of Dennis's house, no further developments to the case were announced. Richard Olin's murder was a massive topic of conversation, but for all the residents of St John knew, the case had stalled and was going cold. But what they did know was that the person responsible for Richard's death, however it occurred, was still walking free. And that's where we'll leave it for part one. Part two will be available on Patreon early and without any of the ads for just $2 a month. And then there'll also be a part three, which will be released partially early. (laughs) You'll also unlock access to two bonus episodes that I've released. Just visit patreon.com slash Canadian True Crime. Or you can download the episodes and wait until they're all released and listen to them together. I wanted to shout out the work of Bobby Jean McKinnon from CBC New Brunswick, whose reporting on the case was a major source for the research and writing of these episodes. Bobby Jean went on to write a national best selling book on the case, which I'll tell you about later, because spoiler alert. This book is the definitive report of what happened in this case, so after the episodes are done, if you wanted to dig in even deeper, I will definitely include a link to purchase it. My podcast recommendation is Crime Machine, which is the new offering from my good friend Jack Luna, who you'll remember from Dark Topic. Dark Topic has kind of been retired, but Crime Machine is something completely new and a bit of an audio experience. Take a listen.
3: Hello, my name's Jack Luna, and I'd like to invite you over for a listen to my new show, Crime Machine. Crime Machine is a new breed of true crime podcast designed to transport the listener to very specific moments in crime. Think Dahmer's Last Meal, or maybe Bundy's First Miss. It's heavy material done in a way that is meant to pull you in, sweep you away, then have you safely returned with some fresh perspective on a case you likely thought you knew. Crime Machine is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope to have you along for the next ride.
0: This episode of Canadian True Crime was researched and written by Gemma Harris, edited by me, and audio production was by We Talk of Dreams, who also composed the theme song. The host of the Beyond Bizarre True Crime podcast voiced the disclaimer. I'll be back soon-ish with part two. See you then.